As Christians turn from our former lifestyles and trust in Jesus instead, many things happen. One thing that happens is he gives us a new heart. That's a heart that wants to walk in God's ways. And as you can imagine, that leads to a very different lifestyle. The prophet Ezekiel promises, uh, the Lord saying, I will take the stony heart from your chest and I will put there a heart of flesh so that you might walk in my ways. Uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians, uh, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Right, so if you are a Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus, on one hand, you've been made new with a new heart. Uh, and on another hand, you're being made new with a new heart. And that leads to a very different lifestyle. In many different places in the Bible, we get really great pictures of what that new life looks like, what a righteous life looks like, uh, undergirded by a new heart that wants to walk in God's ways. Today, we're going to study one of the most vivid of those pictures and one of my personal favorites, and that's Psalm 1. If you've got a Bible, open it up to Psalm 1. We'll look there at the good description we get of the good life that comes when we've got a new heart. Here's what it says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. So this is then a picture of just how good life is when we're trusting in Jesus. Uh, this is what you might call the right definition of the good life, what we have in this psalm. And the reason I say that is because of the first four words, the first line in my translation of it here, blessed is the man. So it's not just a picture of what new life with a new heart following the Lord is like. It's a picture of how unbelievably good it is. To say blessed is the man is like saying congratulations to the man who lives like this. The British would say well done you. Like this is the life that we ought to be aspiring to. Now many cultures have like very different definitions of what the good life is. Like what does a successful life look like? Uh, in many places it's a life of inner harmony and balance, right? Uh, here in the West, it's often about success and work and making lots of money and having a good family and good friendships and things like that. Bible's definition of the good life is quite different. It's a definition that we're going to see here. So uh, one thing we can learn right off the bat is that a righteous life following the Lord is indeed the good life, but it's maybe not the good life that you were expecting when you came in. It's maybe not the same definition of the good life that you had before you began following Jesus. He's not only helping us to live good lives, but he's helping us to understand what a good life even is. So what is good life? Well, we start in verse 1 with a picture of what it's not. 
And then in verses 2 and 3, we get a picture of what it is. Then after that, we get a picture where both of those roads lead and a strong warning and encouragement that comes with it. Let's dive into first at verse 1, that picture of what the good life is not. Uh, He uses this progression, right? Uh, What we don't do as people who have new hearts, as people who follow Jesus, we don't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Uh, It's a progression. It gets a little deeper and deeper. Now, it's a really sophisticated way of saying what he's saying, but basically he's saying that people that follow the Lord uh, don't wind up getting deeper and deeper into worldliness. They don't get ensnared and sucked deeper and deeper into it. Uh, And he does that through this progression. You're going to see first, uh, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, someone who is walking somewhere, uh, they're not all that committed to where they are, right? They could very easily walk to another spot. If you're walking around your neighborhood and you decide you want to take a left instead of taking a right, you very easily do that. You're not all that committed, even if psychologically you're a little committed to the route you were planning on going. Uh, Does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. That sounds like a harsh word in some translations. Uh, In the original, it's not all that harsh of a word. It just basically means general outsiders, like people who are not part of the family of God, who aren't part of God's people. So it starts with this description of someone who is taking their counsel from outside of the family of God. Uh, So in modern day terms, this might be like the person that gets their life advice from Oprah or from really gossipy friends or just, you know, sources that aren't great, that aren't biblical to go to for the big questions in life and advice on how to live a good life and what a good life is. This is somebody who's not getting that advice from TV advertisements or from shows or from a number of sources like that that just wouldn't be helpful and wouldn't point us toward the Word of God. It starts there, walking in the council of of outsiders. But then it goes to the next step. Now we go from walking to standing. Now, if you're standing, you're a little more committed to being where you are. And now you're standing, it says, in the way of sinners. Sinners is a stronger word than wicked in the original language. Uh, By sinners, it means uh, people who are actively doing bad things. So before, it was just outsiders, people who aren't part of God's family, just a general term, right? Now we've moved from that to people who do bad things, like bad people. So we've gone from walking in the council of outsiders to now we're standing more firmly with people that actively do bad things. And then sits in the seat of scoffers. If you're sitting somewhere, you're much more committed to where you are. You've got to get up and then go from standing to walking just to go somewhere else. You are parked there. And now we've gone from sinners, from people who actively do bad things, to scoffers who go another step and they make fun of people who are doing the right thing. So not just doing the wrong thing, but also reviling those who are doing the right thing. So you probably see the progression there, right? From walking to standing to sitting, more and more committed, deeper and deeper into this lifestyle. And on the other hand, from you know just general outsiders to people who do really bad stuff, 
to people who not only do bad stuff, but they make fun of people who are doing good stuff. So the point here is this is not a person. The people who walk with the Lord, who we know his name is Jesus, people who walk with him are not getting deeper and deeper into this lost lifestyle of worldliness. Uh, and it's a warning that to commit to that lifestyle is not just to stand there, but it's to go down a road and go deeper and deeper into a dark lifestyle. Uh, that's what it's saying there and what it means there. That's what we're not doing as people who follow the Lord. That's what the new heart doesn't chase after. It doesn't want worldly advice anymore. It sees that the wisdom and the ambitions of the world are vain in the end, that they're dead in roads, and says, I'm not going to go that route. But it doesn't leave it there. It doesn't leave it negative forever. Uh, instead, verses 2 and 3 give a positive picture of what this righteous new life does look like. And here's what it looks like. It's on one hand a literal picture, and then in verse 3 a, uh, a metaphorical picture, an, an image. Verse 2 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So this is a contrast from the picture we had before. So rather than getting our advice, our answers on the big questions about life, uh, uh, tips on what the good life is and how to achieve it, rather than getting that from the world around us, you know, walking in the council of outsiders, instead, this person's delight is on God's teaching as they're revealed in the writings. His delight is in the law of the Lord. On that law, he meditates day and night. What's it mean when it says law? Well, my translation here has a lowercase l for law. Yours may as well. And when they do that, sometimes an uppercase l, sometimes a lowercase l, uh, it's making a distinction and saying this is not the Mosaic law that it's referring to. Like he's not talking about this person's delight is, is solely in Leviticus and the priesthood laws. It's not saying that. Uh, instead, what it's saying is just kind of a general term for all of God's written teachings, all of his instructions to us, the law, the writings, the prophets, whatever they had access to when this was written. This person was delighting in those writings day and night, reading them, murmuring on them, meditating on them. Uh, the parallel today would be, now that we have access to the full counsel of God, not just the books that they had, but more books as well in the New Testament, it would be someone who is reading the Word of God in their Bibles regularly and delighting in it. It gives us two pictures there, one delighting in it, and the other one, meditating day and night. And they're in parallel structure there to say that it's really similar. Uh, I'll take those in reverse order. Uh, when it says meditates day and night, uh, what it means really simply is just kind of taking it in, chewing on it, getting some insight from it, not just reading it, putting it down, checking off, but like really spending time chewing on it. Uh, maybe thinking on it and pondering it, thinking how it applies to your life. Uh, maybe doing some study on it and listening to faithful people who have good things to say about it. Uh, applying it deep to your own life. Maybe memorizing it. That's often a part of meditating on it because then you learn it so well. Reading it over and over again until you really understand the structure of it. 
any form really of basically chewing on it uh, before you completely take it in, meditating on it, day and night. So that's a picture of like all the time, whether you're in the habit of reading the word every morning and every evening, maybe in slightly different ways for the morning or the evening, or maybe it's just that you're thinking on it so hard in the morning that it's on your mind all day and you're connecting what you read in the morning with what you saw there. Uh, either way, you are like deep into it. That's essentially what it means. And it's a concrete picture of day and night just constantly in it. Now also, delighting in the law of the Lord. So not just reading his words, but enjoying it. Getting to the point where at the end of the day, you're going to bed and you're glad because when you wake up next, you get to open the word again and you get to read it again. And that's just your favorite time of the day. You look forward to it, right? Now, not everyone is there, and some people wonder, uh, how can I get to the point where I love reading the Word of God, where I delight in His teaching and in His instruction? Uh, and this particular psalm doesn't answer it firmly. It does, in that parallel structure, kind of connect meditating day and night with delighting in it in some way. Uh, but my advice to you, if you're just wondering, like, hey, I read it a good deal, I'm getting better at that, but how do I start to enjoy it? Uh, my advice is just to read it to the point that you acquire a taste for it. Uh, those of you that drink, say, coffee or tea, you can probably think of a time in your life when you didn't like coffee or didn't like tea, and now you do like the taste of it. And how did you get there? How did you get to the point where you like it? Well, you just drank it a lot and you acquire a taste for it. Uh, there was a point uh, early in Emily and I's marriage when I realized that my life would be a lot easier if I developed a taste for peppers and onions because she was a really good cook and she would put peppers and onions in a number of things, but there are a number of dishes that she wouldn't make very often because she knew I didn't care for them much because they had that kind of flavor to them. Uh, and it just occurred to me, man, both of our lives would be so much easier if I liked peppers and I liked onions. And so it just kind of resolved, you know, they're not that bad. I could just acquire a taste for them. Well, how do you do that? Well, you just eat peppers and onions until you start liking them, right? Well, that works for the Word of God as well. The more time you spend in it, the more your heart will grow to love it. And so if you're discouraged from reading it because you don't quite love it, well, the best way to get over that is to, to read it a lot. If you're having trouble because you don't quite understand it, the best way to get over that is also to read it a lot. Just simply reading it every day cures so many of these problems. And when you go through a rut, the key is just to stick with it, keep meditating on it day and night as your heart kind of recovers that love for it. So that's the concrete picture we get, right? Like that's the real world, like this, this person loves God's word and is meditating on it constantly. Then in verse 3, the sage moves to a picture. That it's a word picture, right? Metaphor. He says, This person's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers, right? Um, now, I'll just throw in here, he's saying the word he a lot, uh, and sometimes when the Bible says he, it means just men. This is not one of those times. It's speaking equally to men and to women. Many times the Bible does that. So he or she, whoever the person may be, winds up flourishing like a tree that's planted by a stream of water. Now, 
This is a word picture that's based on fruit trees that grow in that part of the world. And one of the great challenges of farming fruit trees like that, like fig trees or pomegranates or all the things that they would farm there, the big challenge was uh, fruit would come due at a certain time in the year, like things would start budding and then you'd get a little bit of fruit. And the way the rhythm of life works there, as soon as the fruit's like, about to start maturing, boom, that's when dry season hits. And all of a sudden, all the leaves wither and all the fruit just starts fading and dropping off because you don't have enough water to finish the process. And so you imagine how frustrating this would be as a farmer. It must be so difficult. You walk out there, you see all your trees that are budding and the leaves are coming every year, but you remember what happened last year and maybe it'll happen again. And sure enough, the dry season comes and the leaves on all your trees wither very quickly and all the fruit just falls off and it never matures. But they figured out that what they had to do is plant their fruit trees by the river. Because if it was planted by the river, well then it doesn't matter if there's plenty of rain or not enough rain, your tree has a steady source of water. And even during the dry season, the tree can continue to bear fruit, bring the fruit to full maturity, and you can get a good harvest, right? The difference was that steady supply of water that came by the river. The person who delights themselves in the law of the Lord, in the words of God, and in walking in his ways, uh, a heart that desires to walk in God's ways, as Ezekiel might say it, or the new creation, as the New Testament might say it, uh, the difference there is no matter what's going on outside, they've got a steady stream of water, right? Because they are constantly taking in truth and constantly equipped to bear good fruit when the time comes due. So that means they're not going to bear fruit only when it's nice and pleasant and just enough rain outside. Uh, they're going to bear fruit whether it's a drought, whether there's too much rain, whether there's sunshine, whatever. They got a steady stream of water and they're going to bear fruit. What's the fruit, you might wonder? Uh, the Bible really consistently uses the imagery of a person bearing fruit as a way of saying a person doing good deeds, doing righteous things. Uh, you might remember if you were taught the song as I was when I was a kid, the fruit of the Spirit, right, from Galatians 5. The fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, right? Those things are the fruit, uh, the fruit that having the Spirit of God renewing in your heart produces in you. You become a more loving person. You become more joyful. You become more faithful. You develop self-control. You build all that fruit in your life. The point of the image here is that you bear those things consistently in season, whether it's dry, whether it's wet, no matter what's going on around you, your faithfulness and the good things that you do are not dependent on the right conditions, right? It's not like, well, when I get what I want, I'm pretty nice, but when I don't get what I want, I'm pretty mean. It's not like that. You're not dependent on how well things are going for you. Instead, even if it's a drought outside, you're still able to produce fruits in righteousness. Now, under the Old Covenant, under the Mosaic Law, uh, they could say this last line, in all that he does, he prospers as a result of walking in God's ways. Now, we've talked about this a lot recently, but the, the nature of Israel's law was God essentially said to them, I've pulled you out of Egypt, I'm placing you in this land I give you. 
if you're faithful to me there, you will prosper there. And if you're not faithful to me there, you won't prosper there. And so they would say with confidence, like if, if you're getting your delight from God's ways and you're walking in God's ways and you're faithful to him, well, the promise they had received from him was in this life, we will flourish and we will prosper. And so they would delight and say, you know, the man who walks in God's ways, like in all that he does, he prospers. Now that's a little different for us who have received different promises from God. Uh, I've said this many times recently and it's a very common theme in the book of Psalms. The promise to us is not that we will prosper in this life if we hold on and we're faithful, faithful to God. It's that we will prosper in eternal life if we are faithful to him. So we can look forward to that promise coming true uh, in coming generations, coming years after the Lord returns and gives to us eternal life. So there's then a picture of what we are not as those who follow Jesus and what we are as those who follow him. The heart that he gives us is one that delights in his word and is able consistently to bear fruit of righteousness because of that. And then because of that can look forward to prospering in his coming kingdom when he returns. And that is what things get to beginning in verse 4. In verses 4 through 6, we get a picture of where these two lives lead. Uh, we get a picture that's a warning of coming judgment, one that we must hear. Uh, and here's what he says. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." So he switches images here. It was a tree planted by the river uh, for the wicked. Now, and for this judgment, it's the image of grain, which is mixed with chaff when you harvest it, uh, dwelling together for a little while, but about to be separated. So what they would do then, and this, people in other parts of the world do this, but in that part of the world, what they would do is time to harvest the grain, and you would get the good grain that you were trying to harvest, but when you're yanking it off the trees and doing all the, the plants and all the stuff that they're doing there, you wind up with a lot of husks and all kinds of stuff that you don't want. And so for a while in their bag or their bowl or whatever they're harvesting into, you've got the good grain and you've got the bad, useless chaff that's in there as well. They're just all mixed together, and it wouldn't be worthwhile to go through and just pick it all out. You'd spend four days working for one loaf of bread. It wouldn't work. So what they would do is they would go to somewhere that had a nice breeze, and one way or another, sometimes in a bowl, they would take a good amount of the stuff, and they would just throw it up in the air. So you've got this like violent image of the righteous and the wicked just being tossed up in the air. And the breeze would blow away all the husks and the chaff and all the stuff that you don't want, whereas the good grain would come back down into the bowl or the plate or the tray or whatever you were doing it on. Uh, so the violent upturning there and what comes back is the good stuff. And the bad stuff is just swept away. That's a picture of the coming judgment the coming separation of people that live together now. Like right now, the righteous dwell right alongside of the wicked and they rise and fall right along with them. But the day is coming when things are overturned so much, so much upheaval that the Lord will separate the two and separate them forever, as is his desire, just like the desire of a harvester to filter out the bad stuff. And so on that day, the wicked will not stand 
in that judgment. Those who are outside of the family of God won't stand in that judgment. Sinners, those who do actively do bad things, won't dwell in the congregation of the righteous after that day anymore as they do now. Why? Because the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So that picture of judgment is an invitation to look at our own lives and say, okay, if the people who live in this one way wind up going that direction and the people who live the other way wind up going the other direction, which one am I? And am I going the right way? Like, am I going to come back down into the plate like the good grain when things are separated? Or am I going to be swept away into destruction? Which one am I? And so that's where I've got to leave you, looking at that and asking which one you are. Uh, If you follow Jesus and you've been given a new heart, this picture is either largely describing your life and congratulating you for it, like, blessed are you, like, if you're reading this and you're like, absolutely, I I read this word every day, every night, and not only do I read it, I love it, it's my favorite part of the day, and it bears fruit in my life, and I can see the difference in what I was and what I am now, and it just makes you glad to read this, the psalm is literally congratulating you, it's saying, blessed are you, blessed is the man who gets to live like this, and that may be you. Or maybe the Lord's given you a new heart such that you want to live like this, but you're not there yet. And if that's the case, then you have in Psalm 1 a picture to look at and say, okay, this is what I'm shooting for. I'm not ultimately shooting for material success. I'm not ultimately shooting for some sense of inner balance or whatever thing you want to succeed in in life or whatever. This is what I'm shooting for. I want to be that person who is consistently bearing fruit for Jesus in the way that I act because I'm consistently drinking good water from his word. So it's either congratulating you on already being there Or it's giving you the picture of what you're shooting for, which can help you to assess some of your habits and say, okay, I'm doing this, but I I really need to be doing this. And I thank Jesus who gave me a heart that wants to do this stuff in the first place. Or thirdly, there are some who will look at this and will say, this is not me at all. Like, I take my counsel from worldly sources, not from the Word of God. I'm nice when I get my way, and I'm not nice when I don't get my way. Like when the rain's falling, I can I can produce fruit, but when it's a drought in the desert, I'm obviously not planted by the river because I can't produce fruit. And you're seeing where that leads. That leads to judgment and destruction, to being swept away like the chaff. And what you need is a new heart. Uh, New hearts, as I said early on, are given to those that trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. So what you must do is look back on your life and look forward and say, I have not walked in God's ways, and I know this. I wish I have. I hadn't. And looking forward, I know I'm not going to get any better without great intervention from the Lord God himself. What's more, I know that I have a huge debt of sin for all the things I have done in the past, and I need someone to pay my debt. Then, turn your eyes to Jesus himself and hope in him, because he took care of both of those problems for you. His death on a Roman cross offers forgiveness for all who would trust in him. If you would look to him and trust him in faith, you would receive the blessing and promise of forgiveness for all of your sins. 
And as we do that, he gives to us a new heart that longs to walk in his ways. It may mean dramatic change in your life overnight. Uh, For some people, it means instead very slow change over many years. And then at the moment of our death or when he returns, he finishes that new creation. In other words, he will make you new and he will also start making you new over the long haul at the same time. Uh, And he will look to his father and say, Father God, accept my death as payment for his or her sins. The father be glad to accept that so that you can rejoice in forgiveness now and forevermore. Then you can start looking to this life as the good life that the Lord has made available to you through the gospel and through the new heart that he has given you.